Romans chapter 8, and we're going to start at verse 1 and read through to verse 17. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God and does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Two weeks ago, if you were uh, here at this service, you would have heard Alan Huxtable um, sharing with us um, a really fantastic, I thought, um, really helpful sermon um, based in the book of Acts, where he talked us through what it meant to be filled with the Holy Spirit So I thought a natural place to go from there uh, might be to start to look at what exactly the Holy Spirit does in our lives. Um, What is it he does? Would we notice if he wasn't there? How should his presence affect the way that we live? So these are the sorts of questions that we're going to be looking at this evening. So uh, I've got a friend, a very reliable friend, uh, I'd say a good friend, uh, although not someone I see all that often, who I would sometimes... uh, Drop him, a, drop him a line, I give him a call or a text if um, I felt like I needed a bit of advice or sometimes even comfort in a difficult time. Maybe you've got someone you know a little bit like that who you might get in touch with if 
you need a little bit of help. Um, is that what the Holy Spirit's like? The Holy Spirit, the sort of person you turn to every now and then um, when life is maybe a little bit difficult, but basically most of the time you're able to get on with things on your own. What does the Holy Spirit actually do? Well, to try to get underneath some of those questions, we're going to have the privilege this, uh, this evening of opening up, I think, one of the pinnacles of Scripture, Romans chapter 8. This is really the conclusion of the first half of the book of Romans, where Paul lays down um, his conclusions to, uh, of what the gospel means and uh, how it works. And what's quite remarkable, I think, is that as we get to Romans chapter 8, a huge number of those conclusions end in the Holy Spirit and his work in us. Um, you'll be relieved to know that I won't be trying to plumb the full depths of riches of Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. As uh, Richard has said, there is so much there. But I hope that this evening, uh, in our short amount of time, that we will be able to see just how much the Holy Spirit does in the life of a Christian, in your life, if you are a Christian here this evening, and that it will be a great encouragement to you, as well as uh, an impetus to spur us on in our Christian walk. So we'll be asking three questions. Firstly, what does the Spirit do? Secondly, where would I be without the Spirit? And thirdly, how should I respond to the Spirit in me? So what does the Spirit do? Where would I be without the Spirit? And how should I respond to the Spirit within me? So to begin with, what does the Spirit actually do? Um, do have your um, Bibles open, by the way. It'd be really helpful if you can see the text as we go through it. Perhaps we sometimes fall into the trap of thinking that the Holy Spirit might be a little bit like life insurance. Maybe useful to have, and one day when we die, it'll get us into heaven. But until that day comes, does the Holy Spirit really do that much? Well, if you've ever slipped into that way of thinking about the third person of the Trinity, Paul has some news for you. Because yes, the Spirit is a seal that marks our hearts as one of God's. But wow, he is also extremely busy in the life of every single Christian. So have a look down at verse 1. Uh, we'll start from the beginning. Paul writes, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So what does Paul say the Spirit does. Well, in some way, Paul is saying that the Spirit has given us life, and he saved us from sin and death, which is no small accomplishment. Now, normally, when we think about receiving life and, the, and freedom from sin and death, we probably think about the work of Jesus on the cross, and of course, that's right. But what Paul is trying to show us in these verses is the Trinitarian nature of our salvation. And to fully grasp what he's trying to say, we need to go back a little bit in history. So way back uh, towards the start of the Bible, God revealed his law, his holy and perfect law to his people. It was summed up in the Ten Commandments, but actually there were hundreds of these laws which God told the Israelites, his people, that they needed to keep perfectly if they wanted to be God's people. That's what they were required to do. But there was a catch. And the catch was that no one, absolutely no one, was able to keep all of God's laws. It couldn't be done. The standard of moral living prov uh, proved to be too much for
for the Israelites and indeed for us to follow even today. Because we are not perfect people. We are born in Adam. Every day we make selfish, unkind decisions. We don't honor God the way that we should. We don't love each other the way God would want us to. Now, I remember talking to a student uh, a little while ago who challenged me on this, and he said, I wish you'd stop telling me that I'm a bad person, that I'm not a bad person. I don't cheat or steal. Uh, I'm actually quite a, good, uh, quite a good friend to all those people around me. What's wrong with the way I'm living? To a certain extent, this uh, person had a point. I'd say his moral compass was probably more finely attuned, better attuned uh, than many of his friends or peers around him. But the trouble was, as I told him, The question isn't whether you behave better than most other people around you. It's not like when we die, we'll all be lined up, all of humanity will be lined up in a big long line according to how well you've lived your life. And if you're in the top 50%, then you'll be okay. If you're in the bottom 50%, then not so well. No, if we were to be lined up in a long line of humanity according to how well we've lived, what we'd find is that even the person at the far most side who lived the very best life, whatever that looks looks like, apart from the Lord Jesus, would still be a million miles short of the perfect standard of living that God requires of us in order to meet his uh, law. And that's why Paul says that God's law condemns us. It becomes to us a law of sin and death in verse 1. It's a pretty extraordinary way of describing God's perfect holy law, a law of sin and death. But that's because to us, as we can't keep it properly, that's what it becomes. And that's the case for every single one of us. God's good and perfect law becomes the law of sin and death because we can't keep it. But, Paul says, there is now, verse 1, no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus because we've been freed from the law of sin and death, verse 2, and instead live under the law of the Spirit who gives life. Wow, what a turnaround. Do you see what a difference this law of the Spirit has made? We've gone from being condemned by God's law to suddenly being made free and made alive and even justified under this law of the Spirit, which is what God had actually promised was going to happen to his people through prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Maybe you know those passages where God predicted a day when uh, he would send or they predict today when God would send his spirit to be in their hearts and the law would be written on their hearts. So the picture here that Paul is conjuring up is really one of a courtroom. It's, it's actually all legal language that he's using. And the image is that you and I are in the docks. And as we've just heard, we fall short of God's perfect standards. We haven't kept the law. But just before the gavel flies down for a guilty verdict... Instead, for all those people who have God's spirit in them, who live according to the law of the spirit, no condemnation comes down on them. Because Jesus, of course, has paid the punishment that we deserve in our place. And we experience instead a law of grace, a law of the spirit, which removes that condemnation. The sin inside us meant that we weren't able to keep God's perfect law. Now, as Christians, we have the Spirit inside us who liberates us from the law of sin and death. 
But the role of the Spirit doesn't stop there because God didn't just want to justify his people. He also wants to sanctify us. So if justification is being declared innocent in a courtroom, sanctification is then the process of becoming spiritually clean or, if you like, rooting out all the sin in our lives. You might think of it a little bit like having a bath and washing all the sin off. That sort of sanctification, except that ask anyone in the room who's tried to shed sin from their lives. It's a little bit more difficult normally than stepping into a warm bath. But as we look through verses 3 and 4, just notice how central that theme of sanctification is and also the role of the Spirit in it. So in verse 3, Paul writes, the law was powerless. The law couldn't do it um, to either bring us justification or sanctification. We'll see that because of our sin. So God justified us through his Son, who came in the likeness of sinful flesh, to be a sin offering. Just pause the flow of logic there. Likeness of sinful flesh is a slightly strange phrase. What's Paul talking about there? Well, he was probably using that phrase to counter some false teaching that the Romans uh, had heard. Maybe it's helpful just to notice what he doesn't say. Paul doesn't say that Jesus came in the likeness of flesh. That wouldn't be right. He also doesn't say that Jesus came in sinful flesh. That also wouldn't be right. He says Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. So despite being not sinful and fully man, uh, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, like you and I. So Jesus came uh, in order to achieve our justification by being a sin offering, which is the wages um, that our sin deserve in our place. Why did Jesus do that? Well, there's many, many answers that we might give and that the Bible does give. But the one Paul gives in verse 4 is perhaps surprising. I was quite surprised when I started looking into it. Verse 4, why did Jesus justify us? In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. In other words, we were justified by Jesus so that we can now be sanctified, which means to follow the law that we couldn't actually follow In the first place. So maybe, just to give you an illustration of this, maybe it's a little bit like someone coming up to you and asking you, uh, starting tomorrow, to build a skyscraper. And you think, crikey, I'm not sure I can build a skyscraper. Uh, That's not really in my skill set. and don't think that's something I can do. Um, But they say, no, 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 you have to build a skyscraper, at least 50 stories. And actually, more than that, your life depends on it. Off you go. Crumbs. (laughs) Right, that's not something I feel equipped to do, but okay. But then the next day, actually, this guy comes back to you and he says, really good news, James. Actually, um, I built the skyscraper for you. Brilliant. Your life is no longer in danger. I say, fantastic. I'll just go back to the day job then. And he said, oh, no, don't do that. Actually, I still want you to build a skyscraper, at least 50 stories. That's a little bit like what's going on here. Because we've just been told that we needed to follow God's law um, because that's, that's the way he wants us to live. But then actually Jesus has died in our place because we were unable to, to fulfill the law. But now we're being told actually Jesus died in our place, justified us, in order that we would be sanctified and fulfill the law. That's what it says in verse 4. It's all a little bit of a surprise. And you say, Paul, why are you now telling me 
that I need to fully meet the requirements of the law when actually it was so obvious I couldn't meet the requirements of the law that Jesus, the Son of God, came to save me from it in the first place. What has changed that makes you think I'm now going to be able to meet the law or build a skyscraper? And of course, the answer comes at the very end of verse 4, the Holy Spirit. Because we now have the Holy Spirit in us, and he is committed to the work of our sanctification. And it should be a huge encouragement to us that we have God himself, by his Spirit, in us, at work, to enable us to start to make progress on keeping God's holy law. That's not to say that we sit back and do nothing while the Holy Spirit roots out sin, but it is good news because we have the power of God at work within us to make us more like Christ. So the gift of the Holy Spirit is a little bit like providing us with everything that we need to build the skyscraper. We're no longer just using our own two hands. It's as if we've been told, go build a skyscraper. Here's the team of architects. Here's a team of engineers. The foundations are all laid but you need to go and, uh, and actively sort of bring it together, if you like, make it happen. But we've been given all the tools necessary to make it possible. What does the Spirit do then? Well, the law of the Spirit is grace. And he's freed us from the debt that we owed for breaking God's law. But more than that, the Spirit now enables us to fulfill the law that had previously condemned us, although that is a work in progress. The Spirit enables us to make progress on the long road of our sanctification. Paul then starts to build on this um, as we keep going through the verses. Um, so we're going to go a little bit faster now, um, but uh, if you drop down to verse 10, uh, see what Paul says the Spirit starts to do from there. What does the Spirit do here? Well, Paul says God's Spirit gives life to our spirit, verse 10. So even though we are all sinful, we still have that sin inside us. Actually, the spirit is at work giving us spiritual life, which is not something we would necessarily expect or um, uh, have any sort of uh, right to expect God to have given us, but he does. So what are these signs of spiritual life? Well, the fact that we can pray to God. The fact that we can read his word, and by God's spirit, it is illuminated into words of life for us. These are signs of spiritual life. But not only does the spirit give us spiritual life, but verse 11, the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. And just as he raised Jesus from the dead, he will also raise our mortal bodies on the last day. What an extraordinary thought then, that the ministry of the Spirit, the same Spirit who gives life to our spirit, will also one day give life to our bodies after death. There's much more that we could say about this, but we're just going to fast forward a little bit down to verse 14, because this is really where Paul's uh, argument sort of comes to a climax. So verse 14, he says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. All Christians have the Spirit of God in us, and that Spirit leads us, is what verse 14 says. So in God's kindness, he's given us freedom. He lets us make genuine decisions, and we do that every day. But that doesn't mean that he's abandoned us to our own devices. No, 
He's always with us. He's always leading us, drawing us back when we start to stray from God. But the Spirit isn't a harsh leader. He's not a drill sergeant. I don't know if you've ever had a drill sergeant. I see people voluntarily sort of submitting to drill sergeant sort of awful exercises at Nick's Park. And I, walk, I don't know whether you, you enjoy that sort of thing. The Holy Spirit is nothing like that. He's not a drill sergeant who shouts at you. Uh, no, rather the Holy Spirit uh, is gentle and kind uh, and leads us. There is no sort of um, punishment from the Holy Spirit when we mess up. Now, this is a spirit who does not make us slaves, verse 15, that we live in fear again. Rather, the Holy Spirit you, you received brought about your adoption to sonship. So the spirit is a spirit of peace, and it should never make us afraid to know that God is in us. He knows us better than we know ourselves, and yet despite that, despite the fact that he knows us so well, he chose us to be God's people, to be his people before the dawn of time. We have nothing to fear from the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. And I wonder whether a lot of the time we do live in fear. We live in fear of the future, perhaps, in fear of something happening at work or at home. Anxiety. It can be very easy to fall into the trap of fear, very difficult to get out of it. And that's where God's Holy Spirit, we're told in these verses, can be such a wonderful, wonderful comfort, because he's not a spirit of fear. Rather, the spirit inside us is the spirit you received has brought about your adoption to sonship. He can drive out fear because God's spirit is powerful and he brings us closer to God. How close? Well, in fact, just about as close as it's possible to imagine being to God. He brings us into adoption to sonship, co-heirs with Christ, we're told. When Paul writes that we're adopted into sonship, that again is a legal standing which entitles us to God's inheritance. What is God's inheritance? Well, verse 17 tells us, in fact, it's not only sort of the, the riches of heaven that we can look forward to. Actually, the inheritance that we are receiving is God himself. That is what we look forward to inheriting. And of course, the Holy Spirit dwelling inside us now is the first fruits, if you like, the, the foretaste of that inheritance um, that he has given us. If you accept King Jesus uh, to be your savior, you have the Holy Spirit in you now as a foretaste of the full inheritance that God has promised in the future. And then just to underline that point, the Spirit enables us to call God our Abba Father. Of course, the very same words that the Lord Jesus himself used to refer to God. You can use those words when you call out to your Heavenly Father because you've been adopted into sonship if you've accepted Christ as your Savior. And as we do that, verse 16 the Spirit testifies with our spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit sort of resonates, if you like, affirms with our spirit that as we pray, Abba, Father, that we really are his children. These are phenomenal privileges that the Holy Spirit gives. How easily we can go about our daily lives and forget that part of the Trinity is at work within us, doing all these majestic things. He's freed us from the law. He's given us that freedom 
taken off that yoke, that burden, he enables us to start to meet its requirements to build a skyscraper. He gives life to our spirit. One day he'll give life to our bodies uh, uh, when they're in the ground. He leads us, witnessing to us that we are God's children with an eternal inheritance ahead, which is no less than God himself. We are remarkably privileged. Those are just some of the things that the Spirit does. Where would I be without the Spirit? Well, where would I be without the Spirit? We all like to be independent, don't we? Um, Certainly, I can tell you I've got a daughter who is two and a half, going on about 16. She loves doing her own things. When we go to the park now, the first thing she does is run off away from mummy and daddy and tries to do all the sort of, you know, climbing frames and swings on her own. And it's only when she gets herself sort of totally stuck and she really can't see anything else to do, then at that stage, a hand will shoot out and you know that you're allowed to go and try and help. Um, We like to think that we're basically okay to do things on our own, don't we? Uh, And while it's nice maybe to have the Holy Spirit there as an option who we could call on, most of the time, maybe we try and go about things on our own. Well, if that's um, a way that we're perhaps tempted to think sometimes, Paul totally dismantles it uh, in these verses. So according to Paul, if we didn't have the Holy Spirit within us, our whole mindset would be fundamentally different. According to Paul, we would be hostile to God. We'd be physically incapable of submitting to his rules, and we would be condemned to pay the punishment that goes with breaking those laws. So look with me down. Uh, We're going back up to uh, verse 5. So Romans 8, verse 5. Paul says, there are only two types of people in the world, those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the spirit. Now, what does Paul mean by that? Is this Paul wildly generalizing, you know, sort of saying something like, uh, Marmite, you either love it or hate it. Whereas in actual sort of reality, there are quite a few people somewhere in the middle, myself included. Well, no, Paul's actually being quite precise here. He's not uh, overgeneralizing because what he's saying is that either you have the spirit in you or you don't. There is no middle ground. And if you have the spirit in you, that will lead you in one direction. And if you don't have the spirit in you, then that will lead you in a very different direction. Because the alternative to living with the Spirit is to live according to the flesh. What does Paul mean by the flesh? Well, he's not referring to skin, bones, and muscle, uh, which we all have. No, in this context, the flesh is our sin-dominated self. That's what Paul means when he writes about living according to the flesh. It's your sin-dominated self, which is actually the natural state that we're all born into. We were all once governed by the flesh, and we made our decisions according to what would work best for us. So today, uh, what do I think will work best for me? Well, that's probably what I'm going to go and do. That's living according to the flesh, our sinful, corrupt self. And when we live according to the flesh, unfortunately, you can be assured that there will be no time for God or or his priorities. And that's our natural state. That's how we start life, according to Paul. And indeed, for some in this room, perhaps you know that that's actually where you still are now. But Paul doesn't shy away from explaining 
what happens to the person who lives according to the flesh? Have a look at verse 7 with me. Paul writes, The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's laws, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. It's pretty stark language, isn't it? Hostile to God, cannot please God in anything that they do. Destined for death, in fact. And that's where all of us would be, were it not for the spirit inside of us. I wonder whether you've ever got on a train, or a long train, which splits in half mid-journey. I've done it a few times. It's a little bit stressful, because when you get on, um, it looks like one train. It looks like everyone there, everyone on the platform is going to go to the same place. But actually, hopefully, you've been told in advance that the front carriages are going to go one way, the back carriages are going to go another. And it's very important to make sure that you are on the right carriage. Well, there's a similar moral here. Because actually, when we look at humanity, it might look like we're all um, pretty similar, doing pretty similar things. But the reality, Paul says, is that humanity is divided in two. Those who have God's spirit in them and those who don't. And the destinations are very, very different. None of us on our own are able to please God. All of us on our own deserve his punishment. And it's only by God's grace, the free gift of forgiveness and the, uh, the giving of his spirit that changes that. If we have God's spirit in us, then all of a sudden our works can become pleasing to God. If we have God's spirit, then all of a sudden we can know life and peace. Have you asked God to send his spirit into your life? Are you happy with the carriage you are in? There is no more important question. Because unlike Marmite, you can't sort of sit quietly in the middle. It is a question which demands an answer from all of us. Without God's spirit, we would be hopelessly lost and divorced from God himself. And if that describes you today, can I encourage you to pray to God a very, very simple prayer asking for forgiveness, and asking for the gift of the Spirit. We've seen what the Spirit does. We've seen where we would be without the Spirit. And now finally, how should I respond to the Spirit in me? Um, I'm not a big fan of Strictly Come Dancing. Well, I say that, I haven't actually ever seen uh, Strictly Come Dancing. But as I understand it, It's essentially a dancing competition uh, full of couples where one person uh, is a celebrity and the other person is a professional dancer. And um, it all seems to be taken quite seriously. They'll spend a whole week practicing, dancing together, uh, and then at the end of the week on Saturday night or whenever it is, you see what this uh, couple have achieved and you see their dances. Well, I'm sure you can spot the parallels. If you are a Christian then you are one half of a couple. You have the Holy Spirit, a part of the Trinity, God himself, leading you. Are you letting him lead? Because these 17 verses in Romans make it very clear, don't they, what the Holy Spirit's priorities are, where he's trying to lead. 
He's giving you freedom from the heavy burden of the law of sin and death. He's very keen, both for your spiritual benefit and, in fact, for the glory of God, which we've been thinking of a lot today, to lead you in ways of holiness. That's the Spirit's priority. He wants to give life to your spirit and to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. He wants to give you assurance and security that you know that you're a child of God with an eternal inheritance that can never spoil or fade. So how should that, knowing that, affect your life? Well, I think we have a choice, don't we? We can either trust our professional dance partner, as it were, and follow his lead, or we can try ignoring him and going our own way. I don't know whether that's ever happened on Strictly, but I'm pretty sure it wouldn't go very well. Because God's ways, of course, are perfect. The Spirit is given for our benefit, not to constrain us, not to enslave us. We've already seen that, haven't we? The Spirit is there for our good. It is fullness of life, uh, which is where he's leading us. Um, And so Paul then sort of ends this section with two quite clear applications for what it should look like um, for, for Christians to live with the Spirit inside of us. And so we'll just look at those very briefly as we come to close. The first is spelt out in verses 12 to 13. So do have a look at those. Verse 12, Paul writes, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So what's Paul saying here? Well, verse 13, he's saying that we all have the Spirit of God inside of us. It should, therefore, be totally inconceivable that we would be veering off towards things which would lead to death. Therefore, Paul says, we need to put to death the misdeeds of the body. He's talking about our sanctification. Now, he's not, just to be clear, saying that our bodies are bad, not at all. Rather, it's recognizing evil or sin in our lives and doing everything we can to actively expunge it out of our lives. It has no place in our bodies alongside the Holy Spirit. And it is an active process, not passive. But Paul straight away is at pains to immediately add that it's not something that we can do on our own. This is something which can only be done with the Spirit, who gives us the desire, the determination, and the discipline to be able to reject evil and start that process or make progress on that journey of sanctification. So what does this mean sort of in the nitty-gritty? Well, negatively, it means not thinking about how to gratify the desires of our sinful nature, which you might know Paul talks much more about in chapter 13. That also seems to be what Jesus is talking about when he uh, tells his followers to gouge out their eyes and cut off their hands if they cause them to sin. I take it those weren't literally to be done um, uh, as, as literal commandments. Rather, we ought not even let ourselves look at or touch things which are going to gratify our sinful nature. That's the point, isn't it? Um, that we don't, even, um, we don't even let ourselves be put in those situations. 
But then positively, the flip side, it means that as we pray to God, that the Spirit would help us uh, realign our hearts towards what is good, that we would see progress being made in that great work of sanctification as the Spirit enables us to do that which we previously couldn't do on our own. That might mean, mean making changes in how we use the internet or uh, which conversations we do or don't get involved with at work. And it will definitely mean setting our minds on things above. In other words, really dwelling on that which is good. Um, most notably, of course, the Lord himself. And Paul writes about that in Colossians chapter 3. So this work is not easy. Putting to death our old sinful desires, our old sinful self, even with the enabling of the Holy Spirit, isn't easy. But it is a crucial work. And it is... Um, it is a work which Paul tells us and the Lord Jesus himself tells us um, is the only way for a Christian to live. And indeed, it is the best way because God isn't out there to ruin our fun. He's out there to give us fullness of life. And this, he says, is where that can be found. And then the second application is to be encouraged and to be reassured. Because it can be quite hard being a Christian, can't it? Some days perhaps we wonder whether it's worth it at all. But one of the great joys in the here and now that we can experience even this evening is that as Christians, we do have God's Holy Spirit inside of us. And he's active. He's not a passive life insurance document. He's a powerful, life-giving, leading, witnessing, holy member of the Trinity who's always with us for our good and for our eternal benefit. Not to make us afraid, not to intimidate us, but rather to make us cry out, Abba, Father, just as Jesus himself did on the cross. And when we see this, when we recognize just how much God has blessed us, of course, it ought to lead us to give him our whole lives as spiritual acts of worship, to thank him to praise him as we enjoy the benefits that he has given us. That is the ministry of the Spirit. And if you've bowed the knee to Christ this evening, if you call him Lord, then he has sent his Spirit, that Spirit, into your hearts in order to bring you safely home to him. What an honor it is to be a Christian. What a kind and generous God we serve. Amen.